Welcome back everybody to the Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing fantastic on this Wednesday. As always, we have so many stories to jump into um, and some important ones, so let's go ahead and get into our first. Blake Masters running for Senate in Arizona, a Trump-backed guy and an election denier and all those things, got pressed on Fox News about uh, this odd thing his campaign did, but something we see a lot of campaigns do especially in the Trump era, which is in the primaries, you pretend to be as wacky as possible to win over the base. And then when the general election comes along, you soften up your rhetoric, you pretend to be more uh, moderate. And again, I mean this specifically uh, being unique in the sense uh, in the Trump era of them backing off of election denying a little bit, but not unique and people getting more moderate in the general. That's something we've seen in politics for a very long time because primaries have a different dynamic um, than general elections. But this back and forth on uh, Fox News, I think reveals a lot of different things about Blake Masters, about a lot of these MAGA candidates and the way in which they're trying to frame this conversation to successfully get through the general election, um, but then also not alienate their base too much. So we'll discuss all of that uh, after watching this clip. Well, at one point, your website had featured this statement. If we had a free and fair election, President Trump would be sitting in the Oval Office today. That comment no longer sits on your website. Why not? Well, I still believe it, that's for sure. And like I said in my debate last week, I think if everyone followed the law, President Trump would be in the uh, Oval Office. Look at how the FBI pressured Facebook and other big tech companies to censor true information about Hunter Biden's very serious crimes in the weeks before the election. So millions of people didn't get to read about it. And then the media said, oh, well, that's okay. That's just Russian disinformation. No, it was true. Hunter's got all these corrupt business dealings with China and Ukraine and millions of people here in Arizona, millions of people in the country didn't get to read about that in the weeks before the election. I think that one act of corporate censorship, of big tech censorship, that sent Biden into the White House. And unfortunately for all of us, because he's doing a really bad job as president of the United States. Now, that's interesting because that has not, nothing to do with the election process. You're talking about why you think it was not fair and what Americans need to know. I don't know if these polls drill down as much on the issue as you just did uh, right there. I, I, I would just ask again why it was taken so, down. You, you we'll let them follow up in a second. But uh, one of the important parts about this is we're seeing across the board a lot of candidates who are trying to stop saying the election was fraudulent and it was stolen through the machines and bloody blah, blah blah and instead highlight oh this kind of manipulated story from their perspective uh from uh, about the fbi going and interfering with facebook's uh, regulation policies and forcing them to take down hunter biden stories that's not what happened f the fbi did go to uh facebook and say we're, we're expecting as we saw in past elections facebook to do a big uh um, excuse me, for Russia to do a big misinformation push in the buildup to this election. So look out for it. They didn't say you have to. They didn't say specifically uh, this particular story needs to come down. That never happened. But they're trying to now frame the conversation as, okay, we're not going to say it was fraudulent, but we're going to say it wasn't fair because of the Hunter Biden story. One of the people in that debate with you was an independent. And I know it was an issue that he was willing to use against you. So just your last thought on that will move forward. Like I said, I think, uh, you know, states change the rules to flood the zone with mail-in ballots. I think mm. that's messed up. But I think the biggest problem, Harris, with the 2020 election was big tech working with big media and apparently being pressured by the FBI to censor true information. Right. So, uh, again, an incredible change of rhetoric there. And this is so important. And the reason why I highlighted this today as the top of the uh, show story is what goes down in these midterms is going to tell us a lot about the future of politics. It's going to tell us a lot about does the general population accept this movement? Now, even though they're trying to portray themselves as maybe a little bit more moderate, and I just have an issue with the mail-in voting, actually, and I'm not necessarily saying it was fraudulent, but it did change the rules, and Hunter Biden should have been talked about more, and that may have changed the election. That's a very different story than we were being told um, since the 2020 election. And the funny thing is they're even wrong on the specifics of those two things, um, but it is very different. And so 
Will the American people in the upcoming midterms accept individuals who have spent the last two years trying to uh, degrade the legitimacy of our democracy, but then are also clearly trying to trick a little bit the public um, into thinking that's not who they are and that's not what they represent when it absolutely is. Interesting moment there. I have two different uh, clips to look at. One of Sarah Palin on Fox and Friends and the second of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Both of them are talking about Ukraine uh, funding and giving money to Ukraine. And the reason is I don't feel like I've very, very clearly specifically talked that much about my personal feelings on the uh, support we're giving to Ukraine and if we should give more, if we should give less. Now, uh, spoiler alert, my analysis is I'm happy with all of the funding we've given so far. And the reason why I think this is important to talk about is even among the left, a lot of people are saying, oh, I think we're going a little overboard at this point. And definitely a lot of people on the right are saying that. So I'll get into that more uh, in more detail in a second here. But first, this just beautiful politician moment from Sarah Palin on Fox and Friends where she gets asked pretty much the question I just posed uh, to ponder and says two contradictory things um, and doesn't really answer the question. So take a look. We're going to give them additional missile defense rapidly. Are you for that and protecting the Ukrainian, uh, have, letting the Ukrainians fight? Well, yeah, you know, I, I am, I don't like to intervene in any foreign affairs unless America's interest is first and foremost kept in mind. And, uh, you know, there's debate whether we have a whole lot of interest there or not. But yes, to protect the Ukrainian people, the innocent people who are suffering um, needlessly right now. Yeah, there again, we have to keep Putin in check. Give them so uh, <laughs> she starts her sentence off alluding to the fact that she doesn't think we should be doing a lot of stuff that isn't directly in the United States citizens' uh, interest or benefiting them directly in some kind of way, which is a talking point we hear a lot from people who are against the aid, uh, but then quickly flips it around to say, but I mean, to help Ukrainian people, yes. So, what, which one is it? Um, and again, I think the second sentiment she shared was more accurate. And then, uh, excuse me, as I mentioned, Marjorie Taylor Greene much more clearly saying she's not in favor of the humanitarian aid that is being sent over. Okay. Humanitarian aid. Isn't that a lovely term? Don't we all believe in humanitarian aid? I do. Sounds really nice. It doesn't sound wonderful. Do we want to help people? Of course we want to help people. But billions and billions of your money is being sent over to Ukraine in the name of humanitarian aid. Let me tell you how big these organizations are. They are professionals in understanding how to apply for grants, how to apply for the money. They get sucked into their humanitarian aid, and are they really providing anything? No, they haven't changed anything in Ukraine. So that's an interesting talking point. They haven't changed anything in Ukraine. Now, she was zeroing in on humanitarian aid, which is odd, because while, of course, every large-scale effort to get resources to people is going to go through some uh, corrupt people. Now, the specifics of any story that's been floated, I uh, don't trust necessarily, especially in the uh, spaces I've been hearing them, but it's not surprising to me that some people utilize nonprofits to do things as we've seen plenty in politics um, that aren't actually what they're purporting to do and um, all of those things, which is absolutely bad and should be condemned. But the large scale effort to get aid to Ukrainian citizens is making a difference and it is uh, helping people and it is necessary. And so, uh, waving it all away because you heard some anecdote about um, someone not spending the money correctly or spending it on personal things or whatever it is, uh, I think is a very dishonest way to go about that. And then to talk specifically about the military resources um, that we've been sending, that has made a huge def uh, difference in this war, in this uh, battle Ukraine is facing uh, to protect their country um, and the right for them to have a sovereign nation. And people, I think, like to 
have it both ways. They like to cheer on Ukraine for doing really well while also saying the United States shouldn't be sending so much support. But while the key reason Ukraine is uh, standing so strong is because of their strength and because of their courage, you also have to recognize the billions upon billions the United States has been sending in military aid, uh, the military technology, the military resources is making a difference, 100%. And then the biggest talking point I hear from people on the left, which I sympathize with about why we should stop sending so much aid is why should we send blank billions of dollars to Ukraine when there's still people in the United States who don't have health care, who can't afford education, who are homeless, all those things. And again, I sympathize with that. But what you have to understand within the context of all these conversations, no matter if we send that next package to Ukraine or not, Ain't nobody's going to change the reality of healthcare in America, the reality of homeless people's lives in America, unless they had the political will uh, before the conversation of Ukrainian uh, aid started. And so uh, if we're going to do those progressive actions that I think you and I all um, stand for, it's going to take a level of political will that is so much more significant than what we have right now in power. And that decision is not going to be made based on if we spent in the past this amount of money um, to help Ukraine in their fight. I can tell you in every other past instance this has been floated, it wasn't like, okay, we cut down the aid to hurricane relief and all of a sudden decided to spend that money on getting people universal health care. That's not how our political system works. Instead, you have to take it case by case. Is this a justified uh, moment to spend money? And then understand we have to do a huge paradigm shift and get so many better politicians in power to achieve a lot of these other ambitions that we have that honestly are not connected at all um, to this current one. And so that answers that question. And the final element of it is the uh, hundreds of years ramifications of Ukraine standing strong and bringing Russia to their knees is so positive for the world that so much money would be justified to be spent to make that happen. Because that would be setting a precedent that countries like Russia and Russia themselves, these authoritarian, um, you know, uh, countries that don't respect the sovereignty of others, will have to learn a lesson when seeing the way that the world united around Ukraine in this moment. And that will have positive ramifications for years to come. It's very important. Let me know what you think in the comments. Tulsi Gabbard appeal, uh, appeared excuse me, on Joe Rogan's podcast and if you missed it, I didn't cover her initial video. I'm leaving the Democratic Party. Yeah, you, were, you weren't in it anyways. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, for a while, she's been doing this grift that we see a lot of people do where they pretend they're still on the left and then just only make right wing talking points. Um, and it's exhausting. But she posted a big thing, finally admitting that she's no longer even attempting to appear on the left and she's not in the Democratic Party. And we'll look at that video in a second here, but I didn't originally cover it because her whole point of doing all this is just to kind of get a bunch of attention. Um, and there wasn't valuable points to be made around it. Now there is, now that she appeared on Joe Rogan, because she talked about nuclear war. And that was one of the things that she uh, cited in her video saying why she can't associate with the Democratic Party anymore because they're warmongers and uh, pushing us towards a nuclear war. Now, we'll discuss why that's absurd in a second here, but first, take a look at the moment um, on Joe Rogan that I spoke of. Are you going to run for any kind of office as an independent? I'm not running for anything now. Um, I am deeply, deeply concerned about this uh, very real and Im imminent threat of nuclear war that no one is talking about, that no one is preparing the American people for, that people are... Um, kind of sitting ducks because of the decisions that our leaders have made. Um, if I felt that there was a way that I could um, stop that and make a difference and impact that and pull us back from the brink, um, then yeah, I'd, I'd seriously consider uh, running again. So uh, first off, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see her run. Uh, but second off, if you're really concerned about the threat of nuclear war and you're saying that people aren't properly uh, highlighting that, then uh, 
you should be more supportive of the Democratic Party right now because the leader, Joe Biden, has been highlighting that threat and has been trying to do everything possible rhetorically to make clear to Putin, listen, nuclear action cannot be taken. Otherwise, we have devastating consequences on our horizon. And so uh, this weird bait and switch she's been doing on this issue has confused me. But to give you context, here's her announcement video of why she's leaving the Democratic Party. I can no longer remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness, who divide us by racializing every issue and stoking anti-white racism, who actively work to undermine our God-given freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, who are hostile to people of faith and spirituality, who demonize the police but protect criminals at the expense of law-abiding Americans, who believe in open borders, who <laughs> weaponize the national security... So she's just lying, okay? ...state to go after their political opponents... There's her alluding to Trump being wrongfully persecuted. ...and above all, who are dragging us ever closer to nuclear war. Mm. All right, we'll stop it there. But the elitist cabal controlling the Democratic Party... Um, I don't know I don't know if there's any genuine element to that or if it's just a way for her to um, fit into this niche because you can make a whole lot of cash if you're the person who just couldn't take the left anymore and now you're gonna go appear in right-wing media uh, whereas people on the left really don't uh, glorify that nearly as much so there's not a huge market for people who leave the right um, to go to the left it's like great you're welcome here but you're not gonna be a huge celebrity who gets gets a bunch of um, money and gigs because of that story on the right for some reason we've seen so many of these instances so right when she started being super critical of everything the left does which is fair you can criticize the left as much as you want but then ignoring the horrible aspects of the right she's getting brought on tucker carlson and all of these things and uh, pretending like, again, as you saw in that video, the biggest issue that's facing America is wokeness and not the massive threat to democracy, the uh, assault on all these important institutions, and the rise of this weird religious nationalism that is uh, dangerous. So uh, I don't really care that much about her, but I do think you should be concerned with the threat of nuclear war that is that we're headed towards, but her using that as a critique of the democratic kind of uh, movement right now, when it's so clear that's attempting to be avoided is a little bit silly. And uh, I hope to not see her run for any office. And then in the same interview, uh, she talks about how she lost friends because of her appearances on Tucker Carlson. So I'll show you this and we'll discuss why I found it notable. What about if you do right-wing talk shows? Like if you're a Democrat yeah. and you decide to go on Tucker Carlson, for instance, like what is that like? Um, it, it ranges from people kind of like giving you a cynical look like whose side are you really on to uh, people just outright um, ending, ending that friendship or that professional relationship because they don't want to have anything to do with you. Have uh, you experienced that? Over and over. Really? Over and over. Um, and, and it's not just Tucker Carlson. There's been this. Okay. Um, so over and over, she's experienced the loss or shunning from friends because of her appearances on right-wing media and the change in her political uh, story. And if you aren't familiar with her, she ran for president as a Democrat and uh, didn't get much support at all, but was pretending to be a, not like a progressive progressive, but progressive on some things and then kind of weird on other things. Um, and then just did a big flip when I think she realized, okay, I'm not going to be successful within the current Democratic Party. So instead, I can make myself this figure that the right will love who uh, pretends to be this former leftist or former Democrat who realizes how beautiful and perfect and wonderful the right wing is. And uh, the important part, I think anytime you hear someone bring up all of these either lies about what the current Democratic Party stands for, which there's some stuff that the Democratic Party does that's um, deeply aggravating, but in a general sense, or uh, grabbing onto the smallest little elements of the progressive movement and obsessing over them and pretending like that's everything. The first thing you have to think about is the person in front of me, 
are they making this criticism right after and then also right before making clear that the real and present threat that is posed right now to the most important part of everything related to politics, which is our democratic process, which is all coming from the right, that threat. If they're not doing that, if that's not how they're structuring, hey, here's some elements of the left that are super um, annoying and aggravating and here's some dumb people. But remember, right now, we may lose our ability to even argue within the political process with those dumb people because we could lose our democracy because we have a movement that stands for a guy who attempted in multiple ways to stay in power when he lost and a bunch of people running in races right now who are saying if they don't win, uh, it was stolen from them without evidence and uh, attempts to get people into Secretary of State's positions who will just do everything possible to keep the Republican in power, even if they uh, lose, and all these devastating things that, again, would break down our ability to even have these political battles on the democracy stage, because the democracy uh, stage could be broken down so significantly. And so someone like her is actually an incredibly dangerous and dishonest actor because she is uh, framing for people who really want to hear this, the conversation as one about some of these issues that may exist uh, uh, within the Democratic Party, but mostly characterizations of the current Democratic Party that aren't even accurate or the progressive movement and uh, making that the focus of people who are moderate and are looking to this former Democrat for some advice or Republicans who like the way that hits their ears. And so it really enrages me when I see people doing this who are just completely ignoring the important parts because we can have policy disagreements let's do it we can hate each other's politics that doesn't matter um but you covering for a very dangerous movement at a very important moment right now in american history is something i can't uh get on board with and then finally i'll say the huge level of complaints that i'm seeing from people who feel outcasted whenever they uh change to being a different political uh, ideology or do something like she's doing I'm a little bit sick of it. Now, I don't think you just simply being a Republican should get you outcasted from Democratic spaces and, uh, you know, big D Democratic. No. Uh, but if you are someone who has just wildly different views about important subjects, this isn't whether you're a, you know, Dallas Cowboys or Houston Texans fan. This is important stuff for the future, uh, future of our country and crucial aspects of our process being citizens here, um, it's perfectly fair for people not to like hanging with you as much. I don't know why it's, oh, I'm being canceled because I lost friends. Yeah, you guys clearly diverged a lot in your stances on important issues. And a lot of times friendships break up whenever that happens. It's not you being the most persecuted person ever. I have people who don't want to be friends with me because they're way more conservative than me. That's just a thing that happens. Maybe I would be friends with them. They don't. Okay. That's not me being persecuted as a progressive. That's just oftentimes people like to hang with people who are similar to them. Now, I think it's beautiful when uh, people of different ideologies can be friends with one another. I have lots of friends who are very, very different politically than me uh, and lots of people in my life who are. That's awesome. But you can't pretend that you're persecuted just because you lose friends because you got uh, super uh, opposed to many of the things that they feel are very important. And people don't like to hang out with people who disagree on crucial aspects of what they stand for. Joe Biden did an interview uh, with Jake Tapper. And I have a few moments. It was a fascinating interview. Uh, the first is he actually got asked by Jake Tapper about uh, his son, Hunter Biden, and the recent news that federal investigators believe they have enough evidence to charge Hunter Biden on tax crimes and then uh, not properly registering or illegally having a particular uh, firearm. So to be clear for all of the people on the right who are obsessed with Hunter Biden, this is not related to the fantastical stories we've heard about Joe Biden being the most corrupt person in American history. This has to do with Hunter Biden's mess ups on his own as an independent person. Um, but nevertheless, it's interesting, and take a look how Joe Biden answers this. What they're for? Our reporting, CNN's reporting, and the Washington Post reporting suggests the prosecutors think they could, they have enough to charge your son Hunter uh, for tax crimes and a false statement about a gun purchase. Um, personally and politically, um, how do you react to that? Well, first of all, I, I'm, I'm proud of my son. 
This is a kid who got, uh, not a kid, he's a grown man. He got uh, hooked on, uh, uh, like many families have had happen, hooked on drugs. Uh, he's overcome that. He's established a new life. He is, um, uh, I'm confident that he is, what he says and does are consistent with what happens. Um, and, uh, for example, he wrote a book about his problems and was straightforward about it. I'm proud of him. He came along and said, by the way, this thing about a gun, I didn't know anything about it, but turns out that when he made my application to purchase a, a gun, what happened was he said, I guess you get asked, I don't guess, you get asked the question, are you on drugs, you use drugs? He said no. And he wrote about saying no in right. his book. So I have I, I, I great confidence in my son. I love him. And uh, he's on a straight and narrow, and he has been for a couple of years now. And I'm so... I'm going to be honest, y'all know recently, especially with his uh, political successes that I've agreed with a lot, I've been complimenting uh, Joe Biden or Dark Brandon, as we call him when he's doing good things. Um, I didn't like that. That answer was, I don't know what, how else he would have gone. So in a sense, it's like, yeah, that's kind of expected. But two elements of it. First of all, it wasn't that coherent. I feel like he messed up a lot what he was trying to say and didn't do it to the best of his ability, but also you made it all about his drug addiction, which I totally agree. When someone goes through that type of situation in life and then comes out the other end, that is admirable, um, them being able to overcome such a difficult thing, a disease to overcome. Um, but that wasn't what the question was about. The question was about tax crimes and the gun. Okay, you address the gun, that's interesting. The tax crimes, Again, of course, what is he going to necessarily say? Yeah, that happened, whatever. Um, but that was a little bit of a, of a juke. Um, and then the next, he, uh, he gets asked about his trip to Saudi Arabia and how not too long after that, the uh, OPEC, which Saudi Arabia obviously has sway in, is a part of, decided to cut production, raise prices. And a lot of people thought that Joe Biden was going to Saudi Arabia to kind of make nice with them so that they would help with our uh, oil and gas situation. And so this is kind of the opposite of what people thought that trip was for, at least in the outcome that occurred uh, soon after. And Joe Biden claims, well, that wasn't what the point of the trip was. Take a look. Turn to Saudi Arabia. Um, some of your Democratic allies on Capitol Hill are afraid that the U.S. got played when you went to Saudi Arabia and fist bumped with the crown prince, because now, obviously, a few months later, Saudi-backed OPEC is slashing oil production in partnership with Russia. The chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Menendez, just called for a freeze on cooperation with Saudi Arabia, including most arms sales. Senator Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, says the Saudis sided with Russia against the United States. Do you think it's time for the U.S. to rethink its relationship with Saudi Arabia? Yes. And by the way, let's get straight why I went. I didn't go to one about oil. I went about making sure that we made sure that we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East and what was going on. And by the way, today, I just got off the telephone with the president of, of uh, uh, I, I got off the phone with the prime minister of Israel and the president of Lebanon. They've worked out a deal. They've been at war, declared war with one another for a long time. They've worked out a boundary relationship along the, in the, uh, in, in the Eastern Mediterranean for oil. I, then they're going to make an agreement that is historic. We also got overflights for Israeli planes over Saudi Arabia. We got movement in terms of how we would deal in the Middle East with aggression from Iran. But it wasn't, you know, there were eight other, there were eight other Okay, uh, fair enough. And then later on, he goes to say uh, that when the House and Senate get back, they're going to try to take some sort of action that punishes or um, or there'll be consequences for the actions that were taken by OPEC. So we'll see there. And I think that explanation makes sense. Listen, the trip, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, was about these other things that are going on that are significant as well. And that would be justification for a trip like that. Um, so I think that one, that one works. And then he gets asked about his uh, age. He is about to turn 80, I think November 20th. I looked it up to see 
uh, when that's happening is his birthday. And so he'll turn 80, which is the first president in United States history to be 80 in office. And obviously he is the oldest um, president to serve. And so he gets asked about that, gets asked about kind of how does that affect you mentally? And then we'll see him later say he thinks he can beat Donald Trump if he were to run again. Um, you're about to turn 80 next month. Happy birthday ahead of time. <laughs> Whenever anyone raises concerns about your age, you're the oldest president in the history. For some reason, that reminded me of, uh, you know, <laughs> my little sister is who I think of, who like plans out their birthday really far in advance. Why are we happy birthdaying him a month in advance? Come on, calm down. It's not your birthday until like two days before. Then you can start saying happy early birthday. The of the United States, you always say, watch me. Voters have been watching you. Democratic voters approve of the job you're doing. Democratic voters uh, overwhelmingly like you. Um, but one poll shows that almost two thirds of Democratic voters want a new nominee in 2024. And the top reason they gave was your age. So what's your message to Democrats who like you, who like what you've done, but are concerned about your age and the demands of the job. Well, they're concerned about whether or not I can get anything done. Look what I've gotten done. Name me a president in recent history that's gotten as much done as I have in the first two years. Not a joke. You may not like what I got done, but the vast majority of the American people do like what I got done. And so I just, it's, it's a matter of, can you do the job? And I believe I can do the job. I've been able to do the job. I've gotten more done. I got the inflation reduction. I got all these pieces of legislation passed. And I ran on that. I said this is what I was going to do. And I'm still getting it done. We've got, you know, dealing with, you know, making sure the veterans get compensated for the, for, you know, burn pits. The, the burn pits, making yeah. sure that we're in a situation where we finally have action on guns. And by the way, I'm going to get an assault weapons ban. Before this is over, I'm going to get that. He's going to get an assault weapons ban, the promise he makes at the end there. That's, that's significant. Um, so, again, from his perspective, of course he can't answer, yeah, I also think I'm too old. Uh, so fair enough, look what I've gotten done. You should judge me based on the effectiveness of my administration. Um, and he has been an effective president, pretty, pretty objectively, I would say, for the first two years of a US president. But I think it's a valid concern from the American people and from Democrats to say, listen, we actually like what your administration's done, but we do want to see a new nominee in 2024. Um, and then finally, here's him saying he does think he can beat Donald Trump. Big question, of course, is when you're going to make an official announcement about whether or not you're going to run for 2024 for re-election. Do you think you'll make a decision before the end of the year? Well, look, uh, I'm not going to make this about my decision. I'm going to make this about this off your election. After that's done, in November, then I'm going to be in the process of deciding. Is one of the calculations that you think you're the only one who can beat Donald Trump? I believe I can beat Donald Trump again. All right, Mr. President, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, okay, so there we go. Um, I think, I think he could. I think he could beat him again. It would be great to have a fresher nominee, um, but. I think Trump's damaged enough to where if Joe Biden, especially with two more years, especially if he still had the House and the Senate 2022 to 2024 and could accomplish a few more things and could give the economy a little bit more time to recover fully from um, at least inflation wise from uh, the pandemic, then I think Biden, with all of the flaws we recognize, could still be Donald Trump. But uh, we will see crazy stuff. We'll be right back after a quick break. back everybody to the luke beasley show donald trump uh attempted as you know to stay in power in multiple ways one of them was this fake elector scheme and so we're going to take a look here about how there's a group that's attempting to shed light on and highlight um a specific individual who hasn't been getting that much attention um whereas rudy giuliani and uh easton or we'll look at in a second here one of the other lawyers that got a lot of attention uh, have been getting discussed who were involved in this fake elector scheme. But another guy, Chesborough, hasn't. And so a group is attempting to get an investigation going on into him about that because it seems like he was one of the original people to pitch the idea. Um, and if you forgot, the piece we're about to look at for the New York Times will also go through this a bit. But um, the idea was uh, state legislatures and then governors sign off on 
electors going to Washington based on who won in the state and saying, we vote our uh, elector votes for this candidate, right? Uh, and that's the electoral college process we have. It's kind of weird, but that's how it goes. And so it's based on who wins um, the popular vote in the state that is sending those electors. And so the idea from these Trump allies was, what if we just get other people to say they're the electors? And then Mike Pence goes, oh no, there's two sets of electors. We can't decide. Trump has to stay in power. Uh, now again, Vice, Vice President Pence said, I'm not going to do that. He didn't go along with it, which was a good move. Um, but that was the plan. And again, that is a non-military coup. You're trying to stay in power. Um, you're trying to overthrow the lawful election process. It's real stuff. So let's take a look uh, from the New York Times. Lawyers group asks court to punish an author of Trump elector's scheme. In the emerging history of how a small group of lawyers aided former President Donald J. Trump's attempt to stay in power despite losing the 2020 election, Kenneth Chesbrough has received far less attention than others like Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman. Uh, I may have said Easton. But documents show that Mr. Chesbrough played a central part in developing the idea of having Trump supporters pretend uh, to be electors from states won by Joseph R. Biden Jr., then claiming the vice president, Mike Pence, had the power to cite the purported existence of rival states, uh, sorry, rival slates to delay counting or to discard real electoral college votes for Mr. Biden on January 6, 2021. On Wednesday, several dozen pr uh, prominent legal figures submitted an ethics complaint to the Supreme Court of New York's Attorney Grievance Committee, calling Mr. Chesbrough the apparent mastermind behind key aspects of the fake elector ploy and accusing him of conspiring with Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Eastman, and others to subvert our, uh, our democracy. And so it continues on here, um, and we'll read, but this is significant stuff. I'm happy they're doing this because... Uh, each and every individual that was involved in this process needs to be held accountable. Otherwise, as I've talked about a gazillion times since uh, 2020, you're setting a precedent where this type of behavior is allowed, and that's the end of, of our democracy. So serious uh, actions have to be taken. On November 18th, the New York Times writes, 2020, Mr. Chesbrough wrote the earliest known memo putting forward a proposal for having a slate of Trump supporters purport to be electors in that case for Wisconsin. He expanded uh, the proposal for other states, including in a letter to Mr. Giuliani on December 13th, 2021. An email by a Trump campaign lawyer in Arizona uh, cited Mr. Chesbrough as having had the idea for sending in fake elector votes to Pence, even though they would not be legal because the governor had not signed them. Um, and you can continue on reading in this article if you choose. We will put it in the description of uh, this YouTube video. But this lawyer group made up of prominent uh, legal figures and former government officials um, and all those things is saying, listen, good that Giuliani and Eastman are getting investigated and getting the amount of attention that they need to get, but also Chesbro needs to as well. It seems like he was the author of the original uh, memo that laid out this idea, laid out an idea to try to subvert our democratic process. And so good job on the part of those lawyers, and we will continue to follow uh, how that goes. A fascinating moment took place on CNN between uh, one of their, let's see, Paul Begala and Andrew Yang. So of course, Andrew Yang, former presidential candidate within the Democratic Party, but then he left it and started his forward party. And while I'm totally for the concept of third parties, and I think we need to do things within the system to make it more likely that third parties can succeed, the way that Andrew Yang is going about it is goofy and silly and doesn't seem to actually be an effective way to start a third party movement. We've talked about that in previous segments. I won't give my whole explanation here, um, but a back and forth occurred on CNN in one of these roundtable situations that I want to discuss and I think you'll find very interesting. Take a look. If they open it, if they open it up, you're going to see, you're going to see a number of people stepping up. And the fact is no. So the context is of talking about, uh, if they were to open up the primary and allow Joe Biden to be challenged, um, then Andrew Yang believed someone would prevail over Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. 
incumbent president who's had a significant primary challenge has won re-election. Right. Everyone knows that. So like every Joe establishment Democrat will say, look, and they'll be leaned on. They'll say, cannot run against Joe. So you know who might run if they actually have an open process? People are already outside of the establishment. Someone like Nina Turner, someone like Marianne Williamson. And mm -hmm. if you have a, a just a Nina Turner versus Joe Biden, Nina Turner ends up gathering a significant amount of support just ideologically. And the last thing the DNC is going to want is for Joe Biden to have to debate Nina Turner six times. Uh, so they'll, they'll shut that thing down. How? I think your point yeah, is how. The legal ballot. Oh, we're going to all find out together. She, it's going to be a good run. time. But Look, the, the, she, was Bernie's, she was Bernie's co-chair. She's a former we, state senator oh, from Ohio. We, we yes, all know, we know her well. Bernie won nine. Count them nine. You were there, Andrew. Nine contests. Joe won 44. And I think Bernie maybe has more support than Nina. So bring it on. What, what, what the hell are you worried about? I mean, but, I mean, you're not a Democrat anymore, but I, I am. And as a guy who loves Joe Biden... That's fine. He, he'll steamroll any potential Look, Paul, Democrat I, I and then go on and beat the Trump. I was the field in the Democratic primaries. And the fact is Joe Biden performed worse in the early states where voters saw a lot of him. And that's just a fact. Iowa, why, why, New why Hampshire. Is that? Why is that? Look, I spoke before or after Joe Biden half a dozen times. And the fact is, when he came off that stage, you know what people were not saying? That guy has the energy, the vigor, the, the like the... And the then all of a sudden he developed it. You're missing the most important thing, Andrew. The early states are full of white liberals. They don't like Joe. Then when we moved to real Democrats, African-Americans in the South, they loved him and he steamrolled everybody. Because in my party, the heart and soul of the party are people of color, not pain in the ass white liberals on Twitter. I'm sorry to use bad language. <laughs> I think but, you could touch the button here. Yeah, because, but that's so, the heart of my party. Um, the I have to address up front. I don't like the wording he used there. Um, but the point that got arisen or got brought up um, was an important one. So no, there's no more real Democrat than another Democrat. Okay. So saying that uh, a real Democrat, you know, a black voter is a more real Democrat than a white voter is silly, but understanding that what makes the democratic base, what it is, is the diversity. It is the black population. It is the Latino population, et cetera, et cetera. Um, compared to the Republican base, is absolutely true and it is fair to recognize that these states at the beginning of the primary process within the democratic party um, absolutely are made up of more white voters more voters who uh, would lean to someone like bernie sanders and that's why he did well in the beginning ones but i'm someone who didn't think joe biden was the most amazing candidate at all and in the primaries was like Ugh. but recognize still the country is not where some progressives think it is yet. So as the uh, correspondent or contributor there highlighted, once it got to states that do represent more uh, the nationwide kind of character um, and, and breakdown of the Democratic Party, specifically its base voting and primaries, Joe Biden did win many, many, many of those contests, as he highlighted. So while I don't like the... Uh, this group of the Democratic Party is a more real part of it than this group. You can recognize the diverse base that the Democratic Party has is what makes it able to win elections and is what makes it what it is. And so whenever you're running in races um, or in states that don't really represent that, it's not a great uh, you know, way to extrapolate if the whole country of Democrats is on board with you at the moment. And so my message to progressives is I love a lot of the candidates that we want to float, and I love the idea of getting to a more progressive future and a more progressive America. But to do that, you got to recognize the reality of the here and now. And the here and now is the country just isn't on board yet with a Bernie Sanders presidency. And uh, they were on, more on board with a Biden presidency. And you can hope for someone more progressive than Biden, even though he's done a lot of progressive stuff, while recognizing uh, the core of the Democratic Party isn't quite there yet. And then you can cite how you poll people on progressive issues and it gets very high support, but that's not all the politics. You got the issues and then you got the individuals who represent the issues. And so a lot of times, even though people, yes, say a lot of them that they want universal health care, they'll vote for someone who isn't for universal health care because of all of the factors around what makes a politician in their mind electable. Now, I can disagree with them on that. I can wish that they would uh, vote for the candidates that go down the line and support all of the progressive policies that in theory 
a lot of Democratic voters support. But it doesn't mean that somehow we were scammed or somehow the election was stolen or uh, et cetera, et cetera, because Biden came out on top and because the Democratic Party still is more moderate than some would hope. Um, and so I think that was highlighted. The other piece of it is, guys, I've heard this a couple of times. Nina Turner, she is, when I hear her speak, she is incredible. And I wished that she beat uh, Chantel Brown. But uh, she ran two congressional races. The first, she lost. It was close. The second, she got trounced in. Why people keep floating her as a possible presidential candidate, I don't understand. Again, love her to death, but not a viable presidential candidate if she couldn't win um, in a district where she was much more well-known, where she had served before um, and, and wasn't able to win there. How could she win on a national stage? I don't get that. Why that would be an idea of her challenging Biden. I just don't get sometimes the uh, ideas that progressives float, even though I'm on board with the policies that I think we are all on board with. So try to be logical, even though I know our hearts get into these things. And definitely an interesting exchange there on CNN. There was a hack of a few different airports uh, online systems that seems to be from Russian hackers. Now, not the Russian government, but pro-Russian, Russian-speaking hackers. So we'll read about this, we'll watch a CNN report about it, and then discuss kind of the important elements of the future we have ahead of us of cyber attacks being you know, a huge part of our our uh, next few generations of dynamics between countries. But first, from Yahoo News, Russian hackers have reportedly been blamed for a cyber attack on multiple U.S. airports, including New York's LaGuardia, uh, LaGuardia and Chicago O'Hare, whose websites were taken offline. LaGuardia Airport was thought to be the first to report problems on Monday morning to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency when its website went offline at around 3 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the attack was soon followed by others on more than a dozen airports across, uh, with CNN reporting 14 separate incidents on Monday at U.S. airports. Other airports whose websites experienced troubles, uh, trouble were Des Moines International Airport, Los Angeles International Airport, and uh, Atlanta's International Airport. So uh, interesting stuff there. Nothing that seems to be absolutely devastating, but it does, again, introduce that idea that we have to be thinking about as a country within the political conversation about how are we properly preparing and properly setting up the technological infrastructure to be able to withstand those types of attacks and understand that going forward it's going to be less and less the military exchanges that we think of and more and more cyber attacks like this between countries and so we have to properly invest in and fund and um and focus on our ability to to defend ourselves. So take a look at this from CNN. More than a dozen U.S. airport websites, including LAX and Atlanta's Hartfield-Jackson, are back online after an apparent cyber attack by pro-Russian hackers. There were no immediate signs of impact to air travel operations, but the hack did affect sites where travelers check flight information, parking, other airport details. The hacking group known as KillNet is claiming responsibility. Uh, joining us now is John Miller, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst. Uh, John, this group, KillNet, what do we know about them? Well, this is a pro-Russian hacking group, um, not a part of the government, at least not yet. Um, it's a group of hackers that have attacked, um, on behalf of Russia, a number of other countries. What's interesting is we hadn't really seen them in the United States until just a few weeks ago. In August, they attacked Lockheed Martin. Um, claiming to try to get into control systems and uh, get employees information. Lockheed Martin, of course, is the manufacturer of the HIMARS missile system that we've been giving to the Ukrainians that they've been using with tremendous effect. The weekend's airport attack, not sophisticated, a DDoS attack, which is basically um, flooding all... We'll stop it there before the specifics uh, go too in-depth, but as he mentioned, also hacking something that definitely would be a response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That is likely why uh, these Russian hackers are doing this. The United States is more front of mind and enemy to them uh, now compared to previous times uh, because of our support of Ukraine and uh, attempting to interfere with the military uh, you know, manufacturers 
within the context of this war because we're giving Ukraine some of these these uh, resources. Very interesting. And again, it's something that we need to be thinking about. I know there's so many issues that need to be focused on, but this is one of them because in a world where all the superpowers have nuclear weapons, we're not going to be lining up a bunch of troops on the Russian border and attacking them because then you just threaten nukes back and forth and you either demolish the entire world or you don't. Um, so instead, a lot of cyber attacks that we're seeing Russia start doing um, will be the way of the future. Something to think about um, and we will, we will keep following it. An interesting poll came out in the uh, Mark Kelly, Blake Masters Senate race. We talked previously about Blake Masters in today's show, um, but previously there were expectations that Masters could win this one based on bowling and the reality on the ground there. But uh, now because of a libertarian candidate also running and getting a lot of support, Blake Masters is having his support diminished. So because if you run as a libertarian, not many Democrats are going to support you, right? If you're a proper, super, super small government libertarian, but some Republicans will support you. And so this third party candidate that we'll discuss in a second here, being in the race and somehow getting a good amount of support is actually making it look like Mark Kelly could crush, which is incredible because we do want to see him um, stay. He's not the most incredible senator ever, but compared to Blake Masters, he absolutely is. Uh, way, way better. So take a look at this piece from Mediate. Mark Kelly up double digits in new Arizona poll as Libertarian plays spoiler for Blake Masters. A new poll in the key Arizona U.S. Senate race between incumbent Senator Mark Kelly and GOP nominee Blake Masters is suddenly a three-person race according to a new poll as the Libertarian candidate Mark Victor is now in double digits, which is significant as a third party. Uh, to get double digits in polling. The survey conducted by Arizona-based um, Ohio Predictive Insights, is that what it's supposed to? Uh, OH Predictive Insights, was reported on exclusively by the National Journal's Daily Hotline Tuesday and showed Kelly leading Masters 46% to 33%, a double-digit lead, which previous polling that wasn't accounting for, or at least as accurately, this third-party candidate was not getting that level of a lead uh, for Kelly. The poll surveyed 674 likely voters in the state from October 4th to 6th and found Victor with 15% of the vote with 6% remained undecided. Kelly's and Masters vote share remained largely unchanged since the same survey was taken in September. The big shift in the poll was towards Victor uh, or toward Victor who had only 6% support in September. Notably, the three candidates shared the debate stage on Friday before the poll was taken. Um, so we'll see how the the debate um, affect the polling unless it said before the debate was okay so that was probably where victor um got a lot of his his support so again that's good news for the arizona race um that's one of the the states people are watching as the one that could tilt the power in the senate so we have pennsylvania luckily looking pretty good right now we have ohio that's going to be tough we have georgia looking good now since uh, uh rafael warnock is likely going to win because of the big abortion story about herschel walker and then you got arizona and i was really worried about that one but it looks like he could pull it through because of this libertarian candidate which would be incredible and we will be rooting him on um, in the midterms that are so so close at this point Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. I will see you tomorrow.